Father, Father, we ask and we invite you to be with us through the Word tonight and in this study. Jesus, that you would really speak again to our hearts as you are so, so good at doing. We pray tonight, Father, that your word would not come back empty, but full, having captured our hearts again. You would continue, Lord, in the process of sanctifying us in the truth. Jesus, you said your word is truth. And we thank you that we have your word before us, and we have your spirit to teach us. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, Walk us now through this. As we cling to your hand, Jesus, just walk us through. Amen. Amen. I was, uh, I think, 23 years old. And it was in the second to third year of our marriage. We were, we were pretty young back then, and uh, the Lord was slowly enticing Cheryl and I to get involved in youth ministry, and we, had, uh, we were teaching in junior high group at a, at a church in Southern California. We weren't on staff or anything, but we were just kind of volunteering and working with the kids, and we had a really special relationship with a, a little girl named Odessa. We called her Odie. And Odie and her friends, we decided one, uh, one evening we wanted to take them to the um, Irvine Fair. It just kind of rolled into town. And you know how, uh, how, how high quality those rides can be at, at those fairs, like the one that shows up here in Oak Harbor every summer. So. And Odessa talked me into going on a ride with her. Now, mind you, I'm, I'm like 23 years old. This is the first time in my life that I didn't enjoy a fair type ride. This ride was called the Hammer. You've probably seen something like this, but basically there's a cage that you get in and you face the person, which is never a good idea to face someone on a fair ride because of the possibility of sickness. I think you ought to be at least back to back or side by side so you can you know, project in any direction other than the person's face. We got on this thing, this hammer, and it started to go around. We have watched it. I mean, it's my fault. I saw what it did before I ever got in the cage. But I got in there, and they lock us in, you know, and there's no getting out. I'm just looking at Odessa. She's like, this is going to be fun. And I'm starting to think, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not so sure. And this thing started to go swing back and forth. Well, I was okay with that. I've been on swings before. Not a problem at all. Then it went higher and higher and higher. And then finally up and around and around and around. And then we just kept going. And I had had quite a bit to eat at the fair thus far. And I just got to tell you, poor Odessa, I was tasting things I didn't remember eating. It was not pretty. But it was almost over. It was slowing down. I thought, okay, this is good. This is good. We're going to be done here. And it stopped upside down and then went the other way and kept going the other way. And at this point, I literally have never felt like this before or since. I felt like my brain was, was out here. It just it was the most nauseating. It was an awful feeling. No, I didn't. I didn't, uh, you know, nail Odessa or anything. But it, it was it was awful. And all I could think is the thing was going around and around and around backwards. Was God stop this ride and get me off? Jesus, come quickly. If he had raptured me right out of that basket, I would have been fine with that. It was, it was the most nauseating thing I had ever experienced in my life. Well, many years went by, and I, and I got a little bit older, and I started getting to the point where I realized there are just certain rides that I can't do. And I'll never forget, we're living in Virginia now, several years later, we were in full-time youth ministry, but we were on a day off with the kids, and we went out to this park in Virginia that had this little toy train ride that went around, it was a lot of fun, and they had a merry-go-round. It was a small merry-go-round, it wasn't even one of the big ones, but the horses were somewhat loose on it, you know, it was kind of rickety and old-fashioned, and I got on that thing with, with Corey, and about the third time around, I'm just going, stop this ride, I want to get off, I've got to get off the horse. I was nauseated again. 
And I tell you that because what we see in the book of Judges is a circus ride for Israel. They keep going around and around and around and, and about, you know, anywhere from 7 to 20 years into this going around in their cycle of judgment, as I've called it, someone cries out and they begin to cry out to the Lord, Stop this ride, I want to get off. And it is such a dramatic picture of our life in sin. That we repent, we come to the Lord. We say, Jesus, I, I just want to be grounded. As I prayed earlier, I just want to walk with you. I don't want to ride. I don't need to ride. I just want to walk with you. And we get off of that merry-go-round, but something happens in our lives, and we jump right back on, and it's that cycle of judgment that goes around and around. And it always begins with that same place, that compromise. And what you see in Judges is every single generation has to learn this for themselves. Which tells me that the previous generation, though they may cry out to the Lord and be delivered, they're not doing a good job teaching the next generation how to stay off that ride. How to walk into the carnival of sin, and when you see a ride called the hammer, you don't get on. You just say no to it. Now we've met four judges so far, Othniel, the spirit-filled judge. We've met Ehud, the sword handler, Shamgar, uh, Shamgar the ox goad wielder, and Deborah, the mother. These are the four so far, and they span, just for your notes, if, you're, if you jot things down in your Bible, you might want to note this, by the time you get to Judges chapter 6, you've covered 200 years of the first four judges of Israel. And the time that stands in between, they, they fall into judgment, they fall into the oppression of an enemy, and it will be a certain amount of time, and then the Lord delivers them, and they'll have respite for an entire generation. But then they will fall again. So 200 years have gone by now. And the first four judges, what we see in these four, are their heroic qualities. We hear about what they did, but we don't learn a whole lot more about their personal faith. We know Othniel was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, but how did that play out in his daily life? We, we really don't know. He delivered. You know, we know Ehud drove that sword into Eglon's belly. But what about after the fact? And, and what was Ehud's prayer life like? And, and how did he speak with and, and, and interact with the Lord? We don't know. We never really hear. Shamgar, good old Shamgar who gets that one verse, kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad, but do we know anything about his relationship with the Lord? No, we don't. And Deborah even. Now Deborah, we get a whole song out of her. You know, chapter 5, we can go back and read and get a sense of her faith and how she really glorifies the Lord for everything that he's done. But beyond that, how did she walk? What time did she spend with the Lord? She was a prophetess, so we can make some assumptions that she listened to the Lord, but we still don't see it. We still don't sit there and watch Deborah in prayer. Enter the fifth judge, who is both one of my favorites and also one of the most disappointing and that's Gideon, the fifth judge. He opens up a whole new chapter in the story because now all of a sudden we've been running along in these first five chapters, coming 200 years, four judges, we move pretty quickly. Then we hit chapter 6, and for the next three chapters we're going to spend time with Gideon. We're going to get to know him. And we're going to have some front row seats to the intimate relationship that Gideon has with the Lord. And so there's much to learn from this guy. But before we get to Gideon, again, the Lord sets this familiar stage for us, this cycle of judgment, the merry-go-round of sin. Verse 1 tells us in Judges chapter 6 that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian, and this is interesting to me, seven years. We've seen eight years, 18 years, 20 years. We've actually seen the Lord kind of increasing the punishment. But now with Midian, it's different. It's seven years. Now, you can look into these things and just consider this and think about it. Maybe probe a little on your own time as to why seven years. It reminds me of another seven-year judgment that is to come, the tribulation, a time of worldwide oppression. The Bible tells us not just in one area, not just to one group of people, but the judgment that is about to befall the entire world, we're told. But it's a seven-year judgment, a seven-year oppression by Midian. And I'm sure, and I, I didn't do this, but I'd encourage you to go back through Judges chapter 6 and 7 and kind of work your way through and see if there are parallels. I bet there are between this seven-year oppression and the tribulation talked about in Revelation, what, who knows, what chapters in Revelation? 
6 through 19. You can keep working with the teens. Revelation 6 through 19, detailing the tribulation period, that seven year period of time, and the Bible is very explicit about that. Well, here we have seven years with the Midianites oppressing Israel. But the question I ask as we read through Judges is why does the Lord allow this cycle, this merry go round of sin, why does He allow it to continue for 400 years? We've seen 200, 200 to come, and it goes on and on and on. Why does the Lord allow it? And the answer is agape. Agape. That unconditional love of the Father. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, for those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And so if Israel's going to hop on the merry-go-round, God will let them, and we need to understand this because it's an aspect of love that we don't often get in our lives and in the way we deal with each other. So listen closely. Proverbs 3.12 also says, For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. The discipline aspect of love is something that we can easily misunderstand. Because the way God disciplines Israel is by giving them over to their decision. By stepping back and allowing them to walk it out. Les said something today I thought was profound. He was talking about the prodigal son. And it's interesting. The story of the prodigal son is not about the prodigal son. You know that. It's about the father. The story is to give us insight into the father's heart, not the behavior of the son, not what the older brother does, although those are aspects of the story. The emphasis of the prodigal son parable that Jesus tells is, this is your father. What is it that the father does? The son says, I want my inheritance. The son's heart is bent toward rebellion, toward doing his own thing. And the father, what does he do? No, I'm not going to let you do it. No, I'm going to force you to stay. No, you're going to do it my way. I'm going to show you. No. The father says... Here's your inheritance. And he gives the son over to his sins. And this is how God often disciplines. He gives people over to their own choices, to their own sin. He says, alright, I know this is bad for you. I've told you, I've shown you it's bad for you. But if this is what you choose, I'm not going to fight you on it. I'm going to give you over to it and let you experience what it is you're choosing. Now, I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I have a hard time letting other people do that. I see someone heading down a wrong path, I want to stand in the way. I want to fight them. I want to say, no, no, I'm not going to let you. No, I can't allow this. And yet, the Lord's position is, here you go. As a father, I try to detour my kids every chance I get if I know they're heading down a sin path. The Lord, as a father, says, you want to choose sin? I'm going to allow it for a season. I'm going to let you taste it. I'm going to let you get some corruption, some decay in your mouth until you cry out. And then I'm going to deliver you and then maybe we'll understand each other a little bit better. That's what love does. Love gives over to our choices. Love says, I don't want you to choose this, but I love you so much instead of blocking you, I'm not going to stand in your way. That's somewhat contrary to kind of things that I've assumed about the Lord. But Romans chapter 1 verses 24 through 28, and I'm just going to read three of these verses to you. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why does God do that? He's allowing them to live out their choices. Does He not love them? Of course He loves them. That's why He's doing it. That they might see and know the difference. And you guys, you know what we're talking about. You know when the Father has allowed us to walk in our sin, how distasteful it becomes to us. And once we can recognize that, man, grace looks good. Deliverance, oh, I long for it. I just want to be where Jesus is. And then when I walk back into Jesus' presence, it's just, it's good. And it makes sin look all the uglier and and God has worked something out in my life. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's Romans 1.24. And it's emotional depravity. It's the lust of their hearts. It's their passion. God gives them over to emotional depravity. Verse 26, Paul says, God gave them over to degrading passions. And he starts talking about physical depravity. Choices that people would make that are physically sinful. Not just emotional passion now, but physical action. And then Romans 1.28, he says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, He gave them over to a depraved mind. Intellectual depravity. 
Now I point that out because it's interesting. The way back, the way back is tied to the way out. See, the way out and the sin choices that we make, emotional, physical, intellectual depravity, in each case, God gives us over to that. But loving God is the greatest way to combat rebellion in our life because Jesus quotes the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and he says, This is how you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, emotionally, with all your soul, intellectually, with all your might, physically. In the exact same way that we are enticed to chase after our sin, the Lord says, You know, if you will just love me with your passions, If you will just love me with your mind, if you will just love me with your body, then that's not going to be an issue. And you will be there in my presence and you don't have to get back on that merry-go-round. You don't have to go through that nauseating experience of sin. So while for Israel's part, what we read in the book of Judges is a circle of apostasy, falling away, sin, for God's part, what we continue to see is agape, unconditional deliverance, as he continues to reach in and literally pull them off the ride and save them from themselves. Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. According to your word to your servant, may your compassion come to me, that I may live. For your law, literally your Torah, is my delight. The Lord afflicts, disciplines, because he loves so much. So the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. Now, the Amalekites... We've talked about before, these are the direct descendants of Esau. Even today in Israel, you can see their nomadic descendants scattered across the landscape. You would probably know them by another name, Bedouins. Mostly, the Bedouins track back to the Amalekites. And previous to that, Esau. But this is a family problem that we're talking about. The Amalekites coming up against Israel. Well, they draw back to Esau, brother of Jacob, who is Israel. They're cousins, distant cousins, and yet there's this infighting. It's a family feud. And I was reading through this and realizing, you know, that's, that's the problem in the world today, family feuds. I think you can probably track every war, every battle, every issue of sin in the world back to family connection somehow, some way. So if you think your family's messed up, <laughs> welcome to the world. It's a problem that we all deal with. Now, something else that's interesting, the Midianites, you might be interested to find out who they call dad. Their father is Abraham. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2 tells us that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. This is fascinating. This Abraham was an interesting man. He was 137 years old when Sarah died at 127 At the age of 138, Abraham gets married again and has six more children. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking, all right, Abe. That's impressive. Man, you can talk about that down at the health club. Yeah, we're having another one. Still a man. (laughs) Well, it says in Genesis 25 that she bore to him, Keturah, his his second wife, bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian, the Midianites. And Ishbak and Shua, and, and another just great name, nameless there. Um, for those of you who someday may be naming children, I think you really need to pick some of these names. I just would love to see a little Zimran running around the church, you know, that'd be great. Now Abraham, verse 5 of Genesis 25, gave all that he had to Isaac. Now listen, but to the sons of his concubines, this would include Keturah, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. In other words... Think of this in terms of family. Isaac got it all. And the rest of Abraham's children got some lovely parting gifts. Thanks for playing. We enjoyed you on the show. Now you need to get out of here. Is it any surprise that the Midianites held a grudge, a bitterness against Israel all these years? 
Even to the point now that Israel is back in the land, the Midianites will continue to afflict and oppress Israel all the way through their history. You're going to see them coming up again and again throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Midianites, who are actually cousins to Israel. But they didn't get the inheritance. Isaac and his sons. We just got, you know, the uh, Abraham board game. Had to take that home. So, the same story continues even today in the Middle East. When you watch the, the infighting and the Arab-Israeli conflict, gang, it is a family feud. It still is. When you hear the word anti-Semitic, what's interesting is we apply that immediately to Jews. We say, Semitic, the Semitic people. Arabs are Semitic people. They come from the same line. And so it's all this ongoing family feud that continues even today. And the world's worst problems throughout history are always rooted in family. Well, reading on, verse 4 tells us that they would camp against them. The Midianites and Amalekites and the sons of the east would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. They'd come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts. Now there's a kind of a connection to the tribulation there. New prophecy buffs. They come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. These guys, these Midianites, these Amalekites, they were terrorists in the day. Their, their whole focus was to instill fear and to destabilize the economy. That's what 9-11 did. It instilled fear in America and it totally undermined and destabilized our American economy, at least for a while there. And that's what these guys are doing. They're coming in and every time Israel sows seed and plants and it begins to grow and they're, they're ready to go out to the harvest, here comes the Midianites. Kind of like a bug's life. Did you ever see that movie? The Disney movie? The locusts would show up just as the ants were, you know, really harvesting all the food. Huh? Well, they were ugly. Grasshoppers, locusts, whatever. They would show up, legalists. They would show up and take all the food. And, and you know, I, I love, it's one of my favorite Disney movies. Corey, or Hayden and I, when he was in preschool, used to watch it. Uh, I'd pick him up from preschool when we come home. At, and this has nothing to do with the study, but I'm just sharing a little personal family stuff. And we come home and we watch either, either A Bug's Life or Toy Story. And Hayden called Toy Story and Buzz Life. He didn't know which one was which because there was Buzz Lightyear and there was a Buzz Life, and so he called it Buzz Lightyear. And that was that was our Buzz Lightyear. You know, Hayden and I we got that time together. But this this is what's going on. Totally random. Sorry. This is what was going on though. For Israel, they'd have the produce of the land. They finally would have some food and they'd have some harvest time. And at the harvest, at the harvest, listen, at the harvest. The locusts came buzzing in, the Midianites, and they would wipe it out. And these guys rode camels. These were fearsome camel riders. They were the first to introduce camel riding warfare. I've ridden a camel. I have no idea how they do it. It's the most uncomfortable thing, and it's worse than the hammer. Getting on that, But they rode these camels, and they rode them well, and they were unstoppable as they would just wipe out the produce of the land. And it's a devilish tactic that is still used today. What do you mean? Satan determines to oppress and instill fear among God's people to avert the harvest. This is what he wants to do among you and me, among us as Christians... He wants to avert the harvest. He doesn't care so much that you showed up at Bible study tonight. That's okay. It's alright that you're growing in the Lord. And it's okay that you worship and whatever. He doesn't have his hooks into you. He's lost you anyway, so big deal. What he has a problem with is harvesting Christians. Those who are out there harvesting the seed that was sown. Those who are out there sharing the name of Jesus, man, Satan hates that. And so he will come in and oppress and attack right before the harvest. To try and avert it, to try and dissuade you and me from going out and talking about Jesus. And that's why praying for boldness is essential to evangelism. 
We see it in the first century church. Acts chapter 4 verse 29. It's a fantastic believer's prayer. So fantastic that it resulted in a holy earthquake. But they're praying and they say, Now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may be protected in our little hidey hole. And that, No, that's not what they say. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all boldness. With confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Let me tell you something. Signs and wonders will not take place if we're not speaking the name of God's holy servant Jesus. We wonder, why aren't there more signs? Why aren't there more miracles and wonders? Are we speaking the name of Jesus? Now, I I can't guarantee this, but I think it's pretty biblically accurate to say we will see signs and wonders when the name of Jesus is constantly spoken around here. And we're not going to see signs and wonders to thrill us. We're going to see signs and wonders because God will use it to save people. He will heal those who are sick. He will raise the dead. He will do what He does so often in third world countries that we miss. Because in the third world country where you've got a missionary, all he's got is the name of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray. In fact, I want to pray this right now tonight. Father, we pray that you will give your servants boldness and confidence in the face of the harvest to speak the name of Jesus. To stand up to that locust, that old dragon Satan. To not be oppressed or afraid of him anymore, but to speak Jesus, your powerful name. And to stand under your banner and to be used by you in this world to see lives saved. To the praise of your glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7, reading on. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet. And I really like this. We have no idea who this guy is. It's just a prophet. It's just some guy. They sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. I like this prophet. Here he is. We don't know who he is. We don't have a name. But what we do know is he's a servant of the Lord, speaking the word of the Lord at a critical time for the Lord's people. He's just there doing his calling, speaking the name of the Lord, calling the people back to the Lord. And I have a feeling we're going to meet this guy, this prophet, sometime into eternity. We're going to see who he is and we're going to be able to go, oh, you were that guy. That's so cool. I always wondered who that guy was. That's the guy we're talking about, the prophet guy. I think we'll see him. Now, here comes the fifth judge. Here comes Gideon. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah. She's been around a while. Which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. This is actually a pretty smart thing on the part of Gideon. He's in the wine press which is where they normally pressed out the grapes to make the wine. He's there. Instead of on the threshing floor, what's the difference? So the threshing floor is where they would take the wheat when they harvested it. Normally it was in a higher place, maybe up on a hillside or a mountain. And the reason is because as they beat out the wheat, the chaff would blow up. It was lighter than the wheat itself. And the wind would come by and blow the chaff away and the wheat would end up on the threshing floor. And then they could gather it up and eat the wheat. So here he is, not on the threshing floor, but he's down in the wine press. Why? He's hiding out. Because Gideon has now seen over the past seven years of oppression by the Midianites that if they see him harvesting, he's in trouble. So he's, he's kind of doing something smart. He's also doing something a little bit cowardly. You know, he's hammering out his wheat and looking around and, and hoping that he'll be safe. And, and there he is. And by the way, the word Oprah means dusty and dry. <laughs> that's what she would say on her show, but that's what the word means. Dry or dusty. And I want you just with this one verse, and point this out, take a note at this little snapshot, because again, they're all over the pages of Scripture. The angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? I believe it is. The pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel, the messenger in the Hebrew. Messenger of the Lord. And how we know that is we keep watching. Every time the angel of the Lord shows up and talks to someone, it's amazing how he just starts to talk in the first person as the Lord. 
So we have this presence here, this man-like presence. This angel is showing up, and he's a messenger, but he's speaking with the full authority of the Lord God himself. It's got to be Jesus. So we have this angel of the Lord, this messenger Jesus, coming to an oak tree in a dusty place to a man who's hiding out just trying to get by. And in the same way, the Lord came to you, and he came to me. In the same way, Jesus came to this dusty world by way of a tree when I was barely getting by. And there he invited me to his glory. Snapshots of the gospel that fill the scriptures. Just as Jesus shows up to Gideon and is about to invite him to glory, so Jesus showed up to you. So he showed up to me. Now notice what the messenger calls Gideon. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Don't miss the comedy here. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Excuse me? He's beating out the weed in the wine press. He's hiding. Kind of wimpy. O valiant warrior. O great one. What is he doing? What's this valiant warrior hiding out in a wine press for? Gang, listen. It's not who Gideon is. It's who God knows Gideon will become. And this is so powerful. This is what God does with us. This is how He speaks to us. Paul says, Ephesians 5, 26, 27, 28, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church. Let's pull the word church out of there. It's ecclesia. It's called out. If you've been called out by the Lord in your life, He's talking about you. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And again, I might say, well, is the church holy? Maybe if you spell that H-O-L-E-Y, full of holes, full of, of, of bad history. We're a mess. Our history as a church is spotted and wrinkled and our record is blemished. And yet such is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that when the Father looks at us, when Jesus presents us to the Lord, it is as though a bride with the perfect dress. Not a spot, not a wrinkle. No stains, nothing. Perfect before the Lord. And by the way, This is another key to developing agape love for other people. Love people not as they are, but as they will be in the Lord. Don't look at people in the place that they're at in their sin life. Look at them the way Jesus does, as they will be on the day of their glorification. Especially when we're talking about other Christians and it's just hard to deal with them sometimes. And i got to tell you, I love you all, but there are days... And you could easily say more about me. But 2 Corinthians 5.16, we've quoted this many times, but it's so important we understand this concept. Paul says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. I don't look at you according to the fleshly decisions that you make. Rather, I look at the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's what I'm looking for. And I hope that's what you're looking for and hoping to see in me. The fruit of the Spirit. Look for the good. Look for what Jesus is doing in me. And praise God for it. As I look for what Jesus is doing in you, and I'll tell you what, with that kind of mindset, agape love will flourish. Because we will no longer be judging each other on the flesh. We will be looking at each other in the Spirit. Paul goes on, he says, We have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. We saw Him in the flesh. He walked among us in the flesh, but not now. Now we know Christ in the Spirit. And that's how we're to know each other. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, listen, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, in the world, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the same thing, reconciliation. Not counting each other's trespasses against each other, but with agape love, seeking always to reconcile. See people not as they are, but as they can be, as they will be in the Lord. That's what the Lord does with Gideon before anything else. He calls him valiant warrior. He will be the valiant warrior. He is not the valiant warrior right now. Verse 13. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why 
then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? See, he listened to the voice of the prophet. The prophet earlier who said, The Lord said, I'm I'm the Lord your God, who delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and your oppressors and brought you out of Egypt. Gideon had heard him, but now he's questioning that whole thing. Where is this Lord? We heard these stories, but now he says, The Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Maybe you felt just like Gideon has. You've heard the stories. You know God's a deliverer. You know Jesus died on the cross out of love, supposedly for you, but but why are you oppressed? Why are you now stuck under this weight of Midian? Why are you between a rock and a hard place? If God did all these miracles back then, why can't He just show me now, do the miracle now? That's right where Gideon is. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said... Go, in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Do you see what he just did? He doesn't answer him. Why aren't you with us? If if you're representing the Lord, if you're the Lord, why haven't you rescued us so far? And Jesus does not give an answer. He gives an appeal. He doesn't give an explanation as to why he's been absent for seven years. He gives an invitation to Gideon to do something about it. I say why, and the Lord answers with what? Why have you done this? Why am I in this place? And the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. He doesn't even acknowledge the question. Because the Lord knows what he's doing. And I believe he would just say to us, stop questioning and just start delivering. Start doing. Get after it. Now, verse 15, reading on. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. That's the memories of Moses. Kind of the same response Moses gave. Who, me? I beg your pardon? Same response Peter gave. Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Same response people who can truly be powerfully used by the Lord often give. Not me. you got to be kidding. Me? You want me to step in and do this? I'm the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as one man. Gideon says, You don't know who I am. And God says, No, you don't know who I am. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with who I am. And I will be with you. This is how the Lord calls, by the way. And I've seen this time and time again. And I'm beginning to, to get it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Faithful is the Lord who calls you, he'll bring it to pass. In other words, if he's calling you, he's going to make it work. He's going to do in you what needs to be done to fulfill his calling on your life. Simple way to put it is where God guides, God provides. When He shows you this is the route I want you to go, whether it looks like you have any equipment for that route or not, is beside the point. If you're called to go, go because God will equip. God will be with you. The Lord will do what needs to be done. Now, no offense to our church staff, but this is exactly what God is doing here at the bridge. He is raising up and calling people who seemingly are not qualified or experienced for what he's calling them to, and yet he is equipping them to do what he wants them to do. And that, to me, is just the most exciting thing in the world. We made a determination among the shepherds praying about this that that we weren't going to hire from outside the bridge. That we were going to say, well, the Lord said, I'm going to raise up from within. So anytime there's, there's a job opportunity, there's something, there's a role that we really feel like is, is a, an important directorial uh, ministry type role, the Lord's going to raise those people up from within. Well, that means, that means it's with this group. And, and how does that stack up against the professionalism of the church today? I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'll tell you what. 
we could hire from the outside and bring in people with great credentials and great resumes and outstanding backgrounds and we could set them up in this church and in this area and say look at how professional and successful we are or we could praise and glorify God that he's doing it through people like me that he's doing it through people who didn't have a clue when they first got they raised their hand to, to ask where the bathroom was and the next thing they know they're in charge of youth ministry that's kind of you know what happens and no one ever did tell them where the bathroom was <laughs> so it's calling over qualification and it's not who you are it's who God is it's not your personal qualities or college degree or experience or even your heritage I'm just a Manasseh he says it doesn't matter I'm the Lord and I am calling you and I am in you and I am with you and Gideon is such a great picture of this but he's still not convinced so he asked the Lord for a sign verse 17 so Gideon said to him if now I have found favor in your sight then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and I'll lay it before you and he said he said Jesus said I will remain until you return The Lord makes himself comfy. In verse 19, Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. And he put meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. Tells us the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Watch this. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. A little floor show for Gideon, and I like this. This is very cool. Going on, it says that Um, When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. If it was just an angel, I don't think Gideon would have said that. I've seen the Lord face to face. I've come in face to face contact. And he knows from the scriptures, he knows from Moses' experience, no man can see the Lord and live. Oh no, (laughs) I just figured out who this is as he reaches out with his staff and fries the, the dinner there just takes it out in a moment and he's gone he disappears by the way does that remind you of another instance that's real similar to that there's another instance in the Bible well hold that thought we'll, we'll get there in a second I go back he says here that he wants a sign and this is something that's been problematic for people in, in the church for a long time and, and Bible scholars looking at this and the question back and forth between the two sides on this issue is isn't it wrong to ask for a sign or is it okay to ask for a sign Gideon asks here for a sign and Jesus I thought he said an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign isn't it a faithless thing isn't that a bad thing well hold that thought too consider this what did it take for Gideon? You got two thoughts to hold. Are you okay with that? You got the one. Is the sign a good thing or a bad thing? And you got the other thing, this, this whole issue of the, of the disappearance and where we've seen that in another place. What did it take for Gideon to recognize the Lord? Think about this. What happened that caused him to recognize it? If you look again at verse 18, there's a phrase here. Please do not depart from here, Gideon says, until I come back to you and bring out my, what? Offering. The word offering in the Hebrew there is mincha. M-I-N-C-H-A-H if you're transliterating. Mincha, it literally means until I bring back my grain offering or my meal offering. And you can read about the meal and grain offering in Leviticus chapter 2. What is Gideon doing? He's, He's throwing out a test here. Does does this person who purports to be the Lord know what I'm doing when I bring out a meal offering? It wasn't just dinner that Gideon was preparing. He is preparing a young goat. He is preparing unleavened bread. And he's bringing this picture of the Leviticus chapter 2 meal offering and setting it before his guest. Does he know what I'm doing? 
who is this guy? If he's the Lord, he's going to know. And the Lord gave the exact response that Gideon was looking for. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22 tells us, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell down on their faces. So when was it that Gideon understood who this messenger really was? In the moment that the bread was offered. That's when he got it. When the offering was accepted by the Lord through fire, when the bread is offered. The other instance in Scripture that we see a very similar account is two men walking on the road to Emmaus. And we know in reading the story, they run into Jesus. And they're walking along together, and Jesus knows it's Jesus, because, you know, he knows these things. And the two men, they have no idea who it is until they stop and they share some some food, and the Lord takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it. And what happens? He disappears. And they know it was Jesus. They realize in the moment the bread is broken, in the moment of the offering, they get it. It's Jesus. And the same thing is true here with Gideon. Both times bread is offered, the Lord is seen, and he vanishes. And when you and I, gang, when we come to the table, when we approach the Lord, and I'm talking about in communion, that is a great time to meet the Lord. Les said this last week. He was saying, you know, it's the time each week that you draw closer to the Lord intimately than any other time. And it truly is. We come into His presence. We come to His table. We meet the Lord. And there, by the way, our ministry is confirmed by Him. Because it's there that we realize it's only through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that I have anything to offer. But because of that blood that covers me, I can enter into ministry. I can follow the calling of the Lord. I can, as Gideon did, realize by the offering, this is God's. And therefore, I accept that calling because it's going to be about Him. Don't allow communion, by the way, each week to become religious and rote and ritualistic. That is an intimate, personal, and important time when we come to the table. Well, Gideon now is being called to arms, but it's interesting what he says going on in verse... uh, Look at verse 23. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom. And to this day it is still in Oprah of the the Ezraites. Yahweh Shalom. Let me just point this out as soon as he gets past it. Yahweh Shalom. Gideon is being called to arms, but he says the Lord is peace. Gideon's being called to be a warrior, to go fight for Israel, but before he does, he recognizes the Lord, Yahweh Shalom, is peace. And I think this is a key to handling conflict in our own lives. What do you mean? John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus, knowing the apostles were about to experience the worst conflict they'd ever experienced over that weekend of his crucifixion, he says to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The key to handling and dealing with conflict and hard times and difficulty in relationships in our life is that the present conflict is going to pass away. The peaceful kingdom is near. The peaceful kingdom is near. It's coming. The present conflict is going to pass. Jesus' words of peace to the apostles were all centered around this fact. Heaven's coming, guys. It's coming. You are going to have your peace. It's soon. And when you know that... When you know it's near, I believe we can live a life of peace in the Lord, even when it's stormy, even when it's threatening, and even when we're facing attack, I can walk in peace in Jesus because the kingdom is near. You can have a troubled heart or you can let not your heart be troubled. Realize that Jesus has been working on the additions to the Father's house. He's doing it as we speak. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. And I love what Keith Green saying about this years ago. He said that, that the Lord took six days creating everything and He spent 2,000 years working on heaven. And if He spent six days creating the universe and all that we know and 2,000 years working on heaven, we're living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. Right. And that's good news. 
And that strengthens and, and encourages me in difficult times, in conflict especially. I can say, man, the conflict is going to pass. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. And so I can build an altar of peace. Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. I can walk with peace because the kingdom is near. Now, the Lord gives Gideon the opportunity to now take a step of faith. But that step starts right at home. Verse 25. On the same night. Don't worry, I know that I told you to hold on to another thought. We'll get back to it. On the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. (laughs) When I was a kid, I never wanted to take my father's bull. But he says, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull. So he used the first bull to pull down the altar of Baal. Take the second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household, he and the many men of the city, to do it by day, he, he did it by night. It's a start, okay? <laughs> you know, Lord says, pull it down. He goes, I'll, I'll do it, but, but I've got to do it under cover of darkness. But it's interesting to me, before he goes off to fight Midian, the Lord says, you've got to start at home. Before you go out there, it's got to begin right here. And this is key, gang. Home is where the Lord wants us to start. If the house is in disorder, if the house is in disarray, I don't believe the Lord is calling us to go on. I don't believe the Lord would call you into ministry when the house is a mess. He'd rather you stay home and fix that first. And he says to Gideon, go to your father's idol. His father's the one who set this idol to Baal and this Asher pole up. And God says, you've got to clean up that mess first. When that's cleaned up, we'll be good. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Talking about shepherds, but I believe it applies to all believers. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And it's important to understand, you can't go off fighting battles for the Lord if your own house is in disarray. Unfortunately, in our human, in our fleshly mindset, a lot of times we want to engage in ministry when our household is a mess. Why? Because over here engaging in ministry, it gives me some sense of purpose and meaning and and goodness. And it helps me to forget what's going on at home. But the Lord would say, you know, I want you to deal with what's going on at home first. Then when you enter into ministry, guess what? You're healthy. You've got a support. You've got a foundation. And it's the right way to go about it. You want to serve the Lord? Great. Start at home. Now, Gideon is not a naturally brave guy, so he launches his ministry secretly and quietly there in the night. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 10.27, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, in Jesus, we got nothing to hide and nothing to fear. And so we can go forward with that boldness we prayed for earlier. Now, thankfully, the Lord is patient. And even little steps of faith like this with Gideon, tested out secretly, even this can be enough for the Lord to use. Look at verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, These are men of Manasseh. These are Israelites. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. And the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son so that he may die. For he's torn down the altar of Baal. And indeed, he's cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. These guys are at this point so depraved that they're willing to kill one of their own for tearing down a false idol. They're not asking for the death of a guy who's, who's a heretic before the Lord. They're asking, they want to protect their heresy by taking him out. It's unbelievable how far they have gone. But Joash, verse 31, Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you deliver him? 
Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. And therefore on that day he named him Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him before he tore down before because he had torn down his altar. He t- he tore down his father's altar here. And his father could have gotten mad, could have gotten stomping mad. You messed up my altar, but he doesn't. It's what his father needed to see. He needed his son to stand for the Lord. And I think, you know, in our our family lives, if we do what's right in God's sight, there is a possibility that unbelieving family members might get angry with us. There's also a possibility that they might get saved. And that's where my heart is. That's where the, where the Lord's heart is for us. Tell them. Yeah, they might get angry. They might get upset. They might write you off as, as loony because you're one of those Christians, one of those right-wing fundamental fanatics. But they might get saved. And here we see Gideon's father standing up and going, You know what? Baal can't protect himself against my son. None of you have a right to touch my son. Let Baal deal with Baal's thing. And I think his father's coming around here. In fact, this act, even done in secrecy and quiet in the middle of the night, this act of faith, little though it was, creates a ripple effect throughout all of Manasseh and Israel as now the people start to look at Gideon, this no-name youngest son, they start to look at him differently. They call him Jerubbaal. The contender of Baal. The challenger of Baal. Man, this this guy went head to head with Baal and he won. That's impressive. And that's what happens if we destroy our family altars and chop down our Asherah poles. We may see people saved when we just stand for what's true. When we stand for the Lord. Verse 33 going on then all the Midianites and all the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and they camped in the valley of Jezreel that's Megiddo in verse 34 so the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Israelites were called together to follow him and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they were also called together to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher Zebulun Naphtali and they came up to meet them all because of one tiny quiet little step of faith And it might be one tiny little late night conversation that you have with a family member, but you have it boldly and the Lord can turn a family around or a region around as He does with Israel here. It makes a huge difference. Now, I want to point something out in this little section that's fascinating to me. A couple of things to note. The Spirit of the Lord didn't exactly come upon Gideon. What are you talking about, Rick? I read this right here. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Well, the Hebrew word here for came upon is interesting to me. It's much more impressive than just came upon. It's labesh, which means clothed. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And this gang is what happens when we are covered by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us in power, Acts 1.8 talks about Luke told us something about this earlier. Luke 24:49. He said, "Before, behold, Jesus said, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's not something that falls upon and bounces off. You're clothed. You are covered. And that covering is wonderful. By the way, there are two reasons for being Holy Spirit clothed here on earth. It's that we might be empowered, but also that we might be sealed. Sealed for our salvation, a covering that is with us, and empowered by the Spirit to function in ministry in this world. But there are a couple of reasons why we would be clothed with the Holy Spirit after we leave this earth, after the rapture of the church. And it's that the Holy Spirit provides our wedding clothes. We're clothed in our wedding clothes as that pure spotless bride with no shame. So we stand before Jesus glorified in in that glorified state which Paul says happens in an instant in the twinkling of an eye we will be changed well we stand before Jesus but we are clothed by the spirit our wedding clothes Isaiah 61 10 says I will rejoice greatly in the Lord my soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation he's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels I'm clothed with the spirit and that's my wedding gown (laughs) Which sounds a little strange for me to say, I'll I'll be honest. 
But it's my wedding clothes before the Father. But the Holy Spirit not only provides wedding clothes, He also provides our suit of armor. And I really like this. Our total protection. So maybe for the women you can think wedding clothes, for the men you can think suit of armor. But the Holy Spirit does both. What do you mean? Revelation 19.14 says, All the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following Him on white horses. Well, that's the armies in heaven. What does that have to do with us? Well, if you went through the Revelation study, you know what that has to do with us. We are the armies that are with Him in heaven. It's talking about us. For just a few verses earlier in Revelation 19.7 it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. The Spirit clothes me in those wedding clothes. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. God's righteous acts through the saints. The robe of righteousness that He covers us with. But it's fine linen, bright and clean, that I'm dressed in for that marriage feast of the Lamb. It is fine linen, bright and clean, Revelation 19.14, that I'm wearing when I follow Him on a white horse to come back. It's my armor. So He covers us with that purity of the wedding clothes. He covers us with the protection of armor. And so Gideon is clothed with the Spirit of the Lord. And here's the other thing to note. When did the Spirit of the Lord cover Gideon? After he had obeyed. Not before. He goes through this process, this little midnight ride, to tear down the altar of Baal. And it was after he followed through with that one act of faith, then the Lord said, All right, here's my spirit. You showed faithfulness, you obeyed, here's my spirit. Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, Repent. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Obey. And I'm going to pour out my spirit. Obey. Trust me. Take that step of faith. And it may be a tiny little midnight step of faith. But take the step of faith. And I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. But that gift, that giving of the spirit. It's interesting to me how it follows obedience. It comes after obedience. We talked a bit about, by the way, baptism and immersion on Sunday. And the best answer I can give to anyone who ever asks, why should I be immersed is this obedience obedience because Jesus said to do it because he asked us to it's, it's really that simple and we can, we can discuss theology all day long about what baptism means and sprinkling you know, the Greek word baptizo versus immersion baptizo and, and how that plays into my faith life and, and decisions my parents made for me when I was a child and, and decisions I make for myself as an adult we can go over and over all that stuff but gang listen Jesus said hey Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the word baptism means immerse. And it's pretty plain and simple. It's just an act of obedience. And that's why I believe Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Obey first. Show that act of obedience. Obedience, by the way, is never driven by understanding. It's driven by love. I obeyed the Lord Jesus because I love Him, not because I get what He's doing. And I'll tell you honestly, many times in my life I have no idea what He's doing. I don't understand. I didn't understand why He said, start a church on North Whidbey Island. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. I couldn't explain it. It didn't make sense. And I had people around me saying, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, but I love Him. So I'm going to step out. And if I miss the boat, well then, you know, I'll step out and go splash. But I... I've got to follow, I've got to obey, I love him. And obedience is driven by love. Verse 36, so then Gideon said to God, we're almost done here, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, I need another sign. (laughs) I mean, you know, you flamed the food, that was great, you know, the barbecue right there, I appreciate that, but I need more. Behold, verse 37, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece a bowl full of water. So God soaked the fleece so the ground all around it completely bone dry. Pretty cool. And then Gideon said to God, <laughs> Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more, please, 
Let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. Now, see, I understand kind of why he's doing this. The first miracle he asked for really is a possibility in the natural world. If there's dew on the ground in Israel, the dew could have stayed on the fleece and dried up on the ground by the time he came out. And, and it's possible. It was a miracle. But if your faith is still you know, in the, in the middle of the night, like Gideon still was, it's possible that it was a natural occurrence. So I just, I've got to be sure. So this time, would you make there be dew on the dry ground all around, but that fleece, make that bone dry. Then I'll know. Then I'll know for sure. And God did so that night, verse 40, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. It's the third time now he's asked for a sign. He asked for a sign, show me that you're really the Lord, poof, fire, okay, that's kind of an obvious one. He asked for a second sign, make the fleece wet, he did, okay, that's, that's pretty impressive. He asked for a third sign, make the ground wet, the fleece dry, he does it a third time. And I read this, and, and I see Gideon continuing to ask for confirmation of his calling, and still seek for a sign, and, and I thought Gideon was spirit-clothed. I, I, I thought he was covered by the Holy Spirit, but he's still asking for a sign. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why he's still seeking a sign. And again, Jesus did say, Jesus did say, Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Isn't this a bad thing? We'll come back Sunday and we'll talk about whether or not it is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would protect me against the anger of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are you are so good, and your word is just so rich. And I thank you, and I praise you for it. And Lord, we do need to stop here because I believe that you have a word for this fellowship again, and a word about seeking a sign and a teaching about how to listen to you and how to have confirmation in ministry. And, Lord, I pray that you will bless us with ears to hear about that on Sunday. But for now, Lord, would you take all that we've studied, the life of this man that we're just starting to get into, and boy, can I relate to Gideon. And I pray you would write these things on our hearts, seal them to us, Holy Spirit, by your power, and give us this just opportunity the next few days between now and Sunday to really kind of chew on what we've heard and what we've studied and the word that you have given us. And Father, bring us safely back together Sunday or just bring us home and and explain it all to us yourself. Either way, we're good. And we praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.